This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Welcome to another podcast with UK Coaching. We're joined today by Paul Shaw, the former head of performance at England Women's Cricket and current managing director of Inside Leadership, a leadership and people development group. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chris. Paul's going to share his experiences when he works in high performance within cricket. We've turned this one called Getting Your House in Order. And Paul's going to start by sharing his experience about when he first went into the role. So, Paul, over to you. Um, well, I went into the role as head of performance with the England Women's Cricket Team in 2013. And I had that role for just over three years, 2013 to 2016. And it was a really interesting time because, actually, I looked to tip it up on the England team have had quite a lot of success in the past under um, a fantastic head coach, technical and tactical head coach in Mark Lane that had had a lot of success. And it was a time where things were changing, things were moving forward, lots of new players coming in, but also some experienced players still within that, that setup as such. But globally, it was, I think, one of the, if not the first, one of the first women's sports that went from amateur to professional. Yeah. So part of my role at that point was managing that transition from amateur um, to professional. And, and um, it's not quite, as you know, it's not quite as simple as it sounds. So it, that took a little bit of time to do. But when I looked at it from the outside, I was really fortunate that I'd worked with the previous head coach for a period of time as one of his assistant coaches and as head of, head of um, high performance in the England setup. And I looked at it and thought, well, there's a few things that we need to change, but actually there's a fair few things that's in place that still needs to remain. And before I made any hasty decisions, I took me time to assess that environment and that and that setup. So, can you just share a little bit about what that looked like for for, for the coaches? Then probably I think they can link back to the headlines, and it would be useful for them just to see what was your approach when you moved into a into a team in an organisation. Well, having had the insight of working with the previous head coach for a period of time, I thought, well, I'd gain some reasonable insight in terms of what was in place currently, how many players we had, what were the ability of the players, which players were perhaps open, which players were perhaps less open, what the next three to four years would look like. I had an understanding of that. I also knew that with managing the game and managing the transition from amateur to professional, certain things did need to change. For example, the England setup at the time, they wouldn't be together at a national camp that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it when they were, they might come together once a month for a weekend or for three or four days. And then most of their work would be done in their own locality with one-to-one coaches. And that side of things, I thought, worked quite well. But it was quite clear that we needed the players together on more of a weekly basis for two or three days per week. So that was something big change that we needed to do and and, and managing that change at times was was quite challenging. But also I looked at it as, you know, what are we going to need over the next three to four years? Not just in the here and now, we wanted to get back into winning ways. We've got a a big year ahead. We've got a World Cup coming up. We've got back-to-back Ashes. We've got a number of series where we'll be on the road all the time in, 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 let's say, challenging environments where I knew... Um, we would be challenged quite strongly in fact so I, I wanted to look at it and think what are we going to put in place that's going to enable us what's going to be the glue that holds us together over a period of time mm. how are we going to go about that and of course we started firstly with establishing a vision a vision that wasn't necessarily my vision as head of performance but actually was a vision for the whole setup um, we worked quite a lot with the players the management team, the coaches, the science and medicine team to come up with a vision that was, I would term as collaborative. Yeah. Because I think learning the lessons of previous years and coming up with your own vision, it's, 
that's then mine. It's not actually owned by anybody else other than myself. So I thought it was really important that we had something that was that was ours, that's collaborative. And we involved, as I say, players and staff in that and come up with a vision that was which was right for us. And then underpinning that, we looked at the overarching objectives that we might need over the next over the next three to four years and we came up with that which were challenging objectives for the team and also for the organisation but actually were realistic as well so if players and staff myself included were willing to really strive and push the boundaries then we'd achieve those objectives but if we were also wanting to let rest on our laurels then we wouldn't achieve them so we ensured that there were you know we could reach for them we could stretch we could strive we could achieve them but then importantly under that we come up with appropriate strategies for playing in different parts of the world okay mm-hmm. playing to our strengths but also understanding what our weaknesses were that we were going to develop and also understanding what the strengths and weaknesses of oppositions were in India in Australia in New Zealand in Bangladesh in South Africa understanding where our strengths lay and how we could bring those to the fore more often. And then, uh, obviously, the strategy there was putting together a roadmap that would enable us to work towards realising the vision that we got. What I should say, Chris, regarding that vision, is we tried to come up with a vision that was of a higher purpose. So I remember when we first had the conversations, Mm. players would talk about, and, and staff and myself included, would talk about being number one in the world, winning Ashes winning World Cups, which is all great, but actually should have deny a purpose to what we do. So what is that? And we know we've talked at length about that. And one of the players came up with, well, why don't we look to inspire the nation? And it, it seems like we're well, inspire the nation, but actually what that meant to that group of players was, if we win World Cups, if we win Ashes, then actually we're gonna enthuse the next generation of players, certainly the next generation of female players and create a career perhaps for those players. So we had an opportunity where we could be pioneers. We could pave the way, we could create something really special. So it was around, if we can do that, then the broadcasters are gonna buy in. Mm-hmm. You know, families, new, new, new audiences are gonna buy in, and we're gonna fill grounds. And that's in effect what we did. So we were always driving for and striving for inspiring the nation. And to do that, we focused on becoming number one in the world and playing a, a really exciting brand of cricket to enable us to do that I think probably just just before you move on Paul I think it's probably worth saying for, for people listening in that, that that Inspire the Nation has been, in the in recent years has become quite well used but at this time that was pretty much one of the first sports and certainly one of the first teams to, to talk about a more holistic bigger value than than perhaps is more common now yeah for sure I mean I'm going back there to middle of 2013 mm. um, so at that point you know that that type of terminology that higher purpose was new to the world of sport so it was great that we were if you like um, pioneers in that field as such but it really connected to the players because the players could feel what it would be like to to realize a vision like that they could see what it would be like filling grounds and seeing young girls coming in watching and also picking up the sport playing the great sport that we all love um, and also logically it made sense yeah absolutely so I always talk about when we look about talk about visions I always talk about logically does it add up emotionally does it give you that warm fantastic vibrant feeling to realize that that vision and also can you picture yourself realizing that vision and that that's something I still work with businesses on now sports on now still talk about a vision that connects in that way so you, you've talked about that roadmap which sets that direction what 
that's brilliant for the for the players, and, it, and it's sort of that bigger picture of, as you said, when you're playing on different continents and you're away from home, it gives us that big bigger picture and that higher purpose. What were the values and culture that you needed to put in place then, so that that looked like everyday actions? So what were the things that you explored there? Yeah, great, great question. Because one of the things I talk about, or we talked about back then was around what's the glue that's going to hold us together. It's all very well when things are going smoothly and you're winning things and things like that, but you know in time you're going to have challenges and some really really challenging and difficult times on the road for sure in some of the most challenging environments. So we talked a lot about what, what's the glue that's all going to hold us together. So we looked at creating team values. Not too many, perhaps six I think we had at the time, yeah. which the players and the staff in a collaborative fashion of a, a six half an hour sessions and lots of reflection on that actually came up with. But more importantly than that, we talked about underpinning behaviours and the underpinning behaviours that we would need along the way. And some of these behaviours were behaviours that we would already be demonstrating uh, as an England setup, but some of those behaviours weren't. So there were behaviours that we aspired and some of the values were what we aspired to bring into life. And actually, that was really important for us. And I remember talking to a number of players, um, not necessarily players that had got at that time huge responsibility or were in positions of authority as such, weren't necessarily captains, although obviously I did work with the captain quite a lot. But there were players that were great influencers. So whenever you're wanting to instill behaviours, values and a culture, actually we talk a lot about cultural architects, in my opinion. Cultural architects are the people are often at different levels of your organisation, different levels of your team, different ages, different backgrounds. They're actually, have already got the, as I would term it, they've already won the hearts and minds of other people within that team. So they're already influencers. Any good leader, any good captain, any good coach, I believe, will tap into that infrastructure and tap into those people. Because if you can tap into those people... And those people buy in, those influencers, those cultural architects, then they're going to influence the future. They're going to influence the culture, the behaviours and the values that you need within that environment in a positive fashion. What you, I think what you're saying there, Paul, what I'm hearing is that you're looking for people who, who absorb those values and can influence within the group. They're not necessarily time-served senior players, so it's more than just a senior player group. You're identifying staff and playing staff that bought into what you were talking about, but lived those values, but then could influence at different levels. So that might be a relatively newcomer into the team. It might be somebody who, who's been playing and, and isn't um, an outspoken leader, as in leading from the front and leading in the playing, but people who, who, who culturally helped you build the scaffolding to deliver that team. Yeah, for sure, Chris. And, you know, some of those were senior players. Some of those were actually past players that we bring into the environment that Great performed point. mentoring roles. Some would be members of staff that have been there a while, new members of staff. And actually, importantly, the energy and the enthusiasm and the de- some of the desire were coming from new players coming in that were bringing in if you like as I mentioned that enthusiasm that passion that desire to really push things on and and they're in a really good position to influence too because actually they weren't institutionalised in any way shape or form Uh, I'm not suggesting lots of the senior players or the current team was I'm not suggesting that at all what I am suggesting is sometimes that fresh blood coming into a setup like that is worth its weight in gold providing the environment and the culture is accepting of those young players 
and their their views and their values and behaviour set. And actually, some of that really challenged um, the the players and the players' attitudes and behaviours that we'd already got in in the setup in a really positive light. So everybody had an opportunity to influence the pathway ahead to enable us to realise that vision of inspiring the nation that we'd we'd set out to realise previously. Just just before we move on, I think I think you're right, that fresh pair of eyes gives a completely different view. And I think whether you work in business, sport, somebody coming in with a different look, a different perspective, different experiences really adds value. People are used to doing the same and the similar and, the, and time served and the senior. So when you're making that shift change to have culture architects across the landscape, it's not just the head coach and the captain and the senior players, but it's actually different staff, different experiences. What things did you have to consider and what were the challenges within your team at that time in order to make sure that the um, newer players, the newer staff that were influencing, it was landed, received and accepted within the team? Well, I looked upon it as trying to create almost a family, almost a family that wanted to work together, that had all got a view on things that we could work through, we could chat through, that could enable us to move forward. And I always talked about, or we always talked about, I smile now, we talk about the royal we. It's about we, it's about us. It's not I or you, it's we, it's us, it's the collective, it's the togetherness. And I, I would speak to players and staff around that, but the most important thing, when I look back on that time and, and, as I say, reflect fondly on that time, is the time taken by the management team to really grow and develop relationships, to spend time really getting to know themselves, each other, every one of the players, because I'm a huge believer if we can do that, then we've got a better opportunity to then influence the pathway ahead. So the time we did respectfully building those relationships, uh, accepting that there were people within the setup that had already offered a lot to the country, yeah. had had fantastic successes, had had a large impact on the game of cricket, not just in this country but across the world, accepted that and also grew a relationship with those players as well and those members of staff to enable those to still be open to new ideas, fresh ideas. And I felt that if we got the relationships as a family we would have a better opportunity to open in minds up, mm. to influence in minds, and to influence a really exciting future. So that, that relationship piece by the influencers, the cultural architects I've mentioned, the management team, the coaches that worked across not just the England setup, but across the entire pathway too, was important. Um, and, and that's something we really focused on. Just before I move on to sort of summarise that, I think the key thing that you've identified there is in order to in order to be successful as a team there needs to be some clear understood vision objective and strategies and then people need to buy into that and demonstrate that with the culture within the environment the architects and then particularly the behaviors that we, we see them with and you've created that family but I want to go back to something you mentioned right at the beginning the winning way so from a coaching perspective what was your coaching environment what's coaching practiced what did it look like when you were starting to build that winning ways we, we looked to create an environment whereby everybody were involved in creating firstly that environment and that culture so it wasn't a head coach thing it wasn't a head of performance thing it wasn't a young player or a senior player it was our duty and our responsibility to collective create the right environment that I believe uh, we strive for being psychologically safe okay for players and staff 
also to, to look to grow and develop. We tried to create an environment whereby the environment was at times stable. And what I mean by stable is it's quite comfortable for some, in fact for us all, some of the time. But also we tried to create instability as well because we know the world of high-performance sport is actually fairly unstable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got to be able to flex, you've got to be able to adapt. And we use the term of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, Yeah, actually. Because that's, I think that's really important, one from a cricketing perspective and a, and a high-performance sport perspective, but from, from a personal perspective, understanding I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable now, this is fairly normal, that's absolutely fine, and let me see if I can strive on and really move forward. So we try to create as much as that as we possibly can. And actually, as we know, learning doesn't take place in a straight line, or very rarely have I seen that happen. It's often, there's often twists and turns and... <laughs> You know, there's lots of opportunity for, for growing and developing and, and it can be described sometimes as quite a messy process. And, and you know what? Understanding that and helping players understand that were quite important for us. And, and I think you know, that messy process thing is, is crucial. Um, the, the fact that learning isn't linear, the, the idea that they're not, it's not always going to be optimal and, like you said, sometimes stability and then you can become unstable. But creating that coaching practice that challenges the the players to op- actually operate when it is uncomfortable when it is difficult so what are the type of things that you started to bring into that yeah so from time to time we would bring in situations where we'd work on a lot more uh, a constraints approach so creating an environment which will we would influence change not necessarily by instructing or asking questions all the time but actually just influencing the environment and the game so we'd look at variable practice or game-based practice quite a lot and put players in the situations that they would be in in a game where they might feel a bit uncomfortable and sometimes we'd overload that okay so we'd overload some of those challenges as well so we talked a lot about train hard play easy okay so we spoke quite a lot about that but when we look at our coaching practice at that time we got I think better at being really clear on what our our intentions were. So what's the intent behind any practice that we set up? Being clear on that. Clarity of of what you're trying to achieve in this session. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked a lot about was start with the end game in mind. So what's the end game look like? You know, Chris, I can't remember the last train I got on and didn't have an understanding of where my destination would be. And I wanted our coaches and our players to have an understanding of what it was they were trying to achieve. And then we designed the sessions appropriately for that to happen. So then the content and the process became easier to map out, whether it was a one-to-one coaching session, whether it was a team session, whether it was a session that would take place over a couple of days at our National Cricket Performance Centre at Loughborough. Clear intention in line with that outcome, a clear content, but also be aware of the coaching behaviours that we were going to look to demonstrate so, for example, two that spring to mind off the top of my head is observe. Well, if we're going to observe as a coach or a coaching team or a group of players, what are we observing? Be really clear on what we're observing. Look at it from lots of different angles, different depths. Because actually, what am I observing? I'm looking to see if the skill or technique is holding up other game pressure or under a constraint that we've put on. Looking at that from lots of different angles and, 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 and using different styles gave me a really good insight in terms of looking at those observational skills and equally when we look to offer feedback 
peer-to-peer feedback, player-to-player feedback, staff-to-staff feedback, or coach-to-player feedback, or the other way around, player-to-coach feedback. It's really important to understand the person, which goes right back to the relationship piece in the first place. Absolutely crucial. And the relationship piece isn't something that you, you've done so you tick a box. You're continually growing and developing that relationship because the player, the coaching staff, ourselves are constantly growing all the time and evolving all the time. So with that in mind, if I were working with a player or we were working with players that were fairly logical, they were evidence-based, they were detailed and the like structure, the feedback would be delivered in that style because I actually wanted the feedback to land. So speaking in the language the person requires was really important and I think we got better. I don't think we absolutely nailed it, Chris, but I think we got better and better at doing that. Thanks, Paul. So I think the thing that, that jumps out to me there is, and this is a, the classic I hear quite a lot when we talk about team sports, is oh, I coach a team. Well, actually, you were talking about coaching the individuals. So knowing the individual, taking the time to, well, one, I suppose, be aware of yourself and who you are and how you operate under pressure, the bits you talked about previously, my coaching behaviours. Then understanding that players' motivations, communication styles, what, when I can realise how and when they want to receive information, you give the examples of feedback. So it's understanding that, which is all part of putting the, I mean, the effective practice structure into place. So there's a crucial part, again, about understanding the athletes at an individual level in order for the team or units to be successful. Yeah, I think for sure. Understanding yourself, for me, is one of the most important things from a, from a, from a plain perspective. Understanding yourself on a normal day and on a day when you're under pressure. Understanding how you're feeling, your emotions, your thoughts, etc. But also from a coaching perspective and from a leadership perspective. Know yourself in different environments, what makes you tick, how you perform and respond when under pressure. Because of course, if we're aware, we have a choice on how we respond, which I think is crucial. Certainly from a coaching and a leadership perspective. Knowing others gives you a wonderful opportunity through growing those relationships to gain a greater insight into the individuals and the teams that we coach and that we work with, a greater opportunity to influence and a greater opportunity to enable the players to grow and develop themselves and take personal responsibility for their own development. Because of course it's, it's their game, it's not my game, it's not the coaching team's game, we're all in it for the same reasons, but actually they're the, ones that, the players are the ones going out performing under large audiences, under large crowds, broadcasters, you know, broadcasting pundits having a view on players and sharing that quite openly. Actually, it's about the players, it's the players' game. So if we can grow the players and enable the players to grow themselves, to take responsibility for their own practice, for their own game, for their own review, then actually we're in a, a greater shape, I think. And I suppose that links back to particularly the comment you mentioned about broadcasters having comments about about the players well that's uh, the shift moving from being under the radar as amateur players moving into the world of professionalism and the quality of the competition and the arena they're playing in two, two things that I'd like to finish with if I can pulling some words that you mentioned before so this constraints approach the idea of challenging environments and players being able to deliver under pressure so first of all can you just share some examples of, of how within your coaching practice and within the team environment you create those pressure situations just some simple if you like, bring it to life so that coaches can think, well, how might that apply in my in my environment? What might I do to manipulate my practice to create pressure? Yeah, so from a cricketing perspective, let's talk about cricketing, and then I'll talk about off the field too, 
So from a cricketing perspective, we went through a, a phase where we wanted the players to be hitting the ball or striking the ball down the ground a lot better. Okay, so with a full face of the bat hitting the ball down the ground. So from that perspective, we just set up a game situation where we got 11 versus 11. And all we said to the batters was the boundary down the ground, the straight boundary we're bringing in, 20 yards. Yeah. And if you hit the ball over that boundary line, you'll get six or 10, okay, as opposed to four or six. Yeah. And square of the wicket, side on to the wicket as the batter bats. What we will do is we'll push those boundaries a long, long, long way out. So maximum, if you get over that boundary, you only get two runs. What was the intention? The intention was for the players to go straight down the pitch and down the ground and score more runs down the ground where there's more space behind the bowler and it's low risk, high reward strategy. Okay, And we also wanted the players to play the ball in front of square and rotate the strike a lot more than they were. We never mentioned that. We just created and influenced the environment for that to happen. What we did do is we would unpick that in real detail. Like, what just happened there? How's your, how have you adapted, adapted to the situation? Because, of course, in the game of cricket, you're constantly adapting to that situation. So we'd enable the players during and after, through questioning and good reviews and debriefs, to understand what's just happened. So they could take that on board and, and make sense of what we've done because actually we wanted the players to identify in games the change in game plans of the opposition so that we could adapt to that and be ahead of the game as such and be successful more consistently for longer periods so I've just picked up six things that, that came from that little nugget if you like so the, the difference between implicit and explicit in the information that you give to your, to your athletes so actually there was some implicit stuff that you didn't share and that comes back later but sometimes you're explicit in what you do the use of attentional focus, so creating and constraining the practice so that you're f getting the players to think about what you want them to achieve rather than saying what you don't want them to do. You were encouraging and rewarding the area that you wanted to focus on. Then obviously from that was an awful lot of planning that goes in with yourself and the other coaches to make sure everyone's on message. Reflection and review of that, so reflecting on the practice and did it achieve the outcome and reviewing that both as coaches but also with the athletes so that they understand what that is and then that links back to a bigger strategy about how we might want to play the game. So there's an awful lot in that yeah. one one example. And, and and the planning process for that is it's never a one hit wonder, it's continual, it's ongoing all the time. The the informal conversations that we're all having as a as a coaching team, it is happening all the time some of that's structured lots of that's actually informal but always in line with an outcome always in line with a real clear intention Intent. at part of those sessions we would get the players to review those sessions mm. so they wouldn't have that much influence always from the coaching staff we'd set it up just review it what are the key things that you've taken from that because we wanted the players do you know I think for a period of time I think we were brilliant at reflecting after the event so we're always very good after the game, reviewing what's just happened. In the moment. We wanted the players to take responsibility for reviewing in the moment because, of course, as we know in the moment, we can then change the game. After the event, we can only change the next game that we're working towards. We wanted the players to be able to identify the situation quite quickly, have a brief conversation on what's happening and identify the strategy that they needed to do, how we're going to respond to this in a proactive manner so we could then perhaps turn a game round that we may have been losing to ensure that we win. 
it just fits with a quote I've heard with a, another coach previously. It's it's providing the skills before they're required in the arena. So equipping them with a wide a wide range of skill set, enabling them to make the right choices, and have recognised when this looks like this, or this in particular in cricket, when the field's set up in this particular way, or the number of overs that we've got, or the time of the day, we can influence that and then impact on that because we've we've got used to this and we understand what's in our skill set and our marine toolbox. Yeah. You mentioned before an example, or you said you mentioned an example off the field. What would that look like? Yeah, so I can think of a couple. So we, as I say, we we'd got together then as a as a, um, a national program at Loughborough, the National Cricket Performance Centre, two to three days a week now, which was happening consistently in, in, in terms of professional game. So that gave us an opportunity also to uh, create exercises or let's say things where the players we might be surprised at certain times so for example we knew that we got a World Cup coming up in 2014 in Bangladesh um, a fantastic country actually and we knew that Bangladesh would offer us some challenges really busy place not everything always runs in a very structured linear fashion as we tend to expect in England we would ensure that when we had a warm up game over here in preparation to going out there the bus might be late so we'd agree that the bus would be late. The players wouldn't know anything about it. Not all members of staff would because we wanted to put some members of staff under that little bit of pressure as well. So we wanted the players that would normally arrive at a ground on a really nice bus with good air conditioning, rather to arrive at the ground an hour and a half prior to the game to go through the, the, the last-minute team talks, clear instruction you know, an hour warm-up to actually arrive half an hour before the game so they got to click into gear quite quickly, brief instruction, get out there, get on with it, brief warm-up, be clear on what they need to do, bump, bump, just in case that happened. Hmm. We also set fire alarms up at 5.30 in the morning, so we wanted the players to be uncomfortable at certain times and a few members of staff would also take on those tasks or activities, some of the stuff I wouldn't know about, so it was how I would react when I'm pushed out of my comfort zone. And, and we did that on a fairly regular basis. Fire alarm went off in India, six o'clock in the morning, half an hour before we'd done it in England, you know, for that 5.30 yeah. to get up. Six o'clock, it actually happened on the day of a game. In Bangladesh, we were in that 2014 World Cup, the bus broke down on the way to picking us up. So what we'd put in practice Preparing. absolutely came to the fore. It probably wasn't up until that actually happened in real life that the players understood, and I'm sure that they weren't too happy back in Loughborough on a cold, rainy, dark morning when they were getting up at 5.30 and the bus is breaking down. <laughs> but actually, nearly every player said, right, we've been here before, we know what we need to do, let's click into gear. And so really, coaching practice is around, and we've talked about this previously, Paul, it's the piece around pressure. Pressure, to some extent, pressure's a perception. So if I've never experienced this before, uh, my emotions can take over. If I know it's happening before, I know what to do, I understand that, I've got a, a strategy and a plan B in place, then actually for many people that's mu a much easier way to go. So the benefit of challenging players to feel, as you said, uh, being comfortable with being uncomfortable is a mindset that, that precates yeah. all of your holistic development really. 100%. I'm, I'm a huge believer in mindset and, and self-awareness, so therefore from an emotional intelligence perspective, understand what's happening, what am I feeling, what am I thinking, and how I can actually flip that, how we can flip that, uh, and how we can choose how we'll respond. 
all these exercises that I've mentioned were all worked through with the psychologists that we had mm -hmm. at the time because we wanted to put the players um, out of their comfort zone for sure but we also wanted to build a scaffolding around them with the appropriate support and challenge that we knew would help them grow as, as players but crucially would help them grow and develop as individuals too. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Paul. Developing players' personal responsibility. Um, I think every coach says that that's, that's crucially important. We want to create um, non-dependent, was a, was a term that I picked up from Irish Sailing. Uh, they wanted people not to be independent, but non-dependent. Their feeling was that independent sometimes doesn't listen to other people and they want them to be non-dependent. You talked about that personal responsibility. What does that look like, one, for you as a coach with your athletes, and then can you give a couple of examples of how you encourage that with either the team or individuals? Yeah, so for me, it's the, it's the game of the athlete. So the athlete's going to go out there into the performance environment, into the theatre, sometimes under pressure to perform their skills. So if we instruct, if, if we instruct all the time, if we go into executive tell all the time, and sometimes there's a need for that, there's a balance. Actually, the player becomes, in my opinion, too dependent on us as a coaching team, arguably. With that in mind, I'm not keen on a sat-nav approach, because often I find when the sat-nav breaks down, we've forgot how to think for ourselves. Yeah. So we wanted the players to be able to think for themselves, and it's really surprising, actually, that when players start thinking for themselves, when athletes think for themselves, they start working out what's right for them, what's good for them. They differentiate a little better between want and need. Okay, so we encourage them to design their own sessions from time to time and we, we term them as golden hour or golden time where they would go there and say, in the National Cricket Performance Centre or where everywhere in the world, here's what I want to achieve by this session. All they did was jot that down on a whiteboard Here's what I want to achieve, or here's what we need to achieve. That's what I'm going to go through as a process, and here's how I'm going to review it. And that's the practice I'll design. And players took responsibility for that. Just on that, Paul, and I think just probably, hopefully, you'll, you'll agree with me. Having done that myself with the national team, for coaches to be aware that are listening in, that, that that doesn't work perfectly to begin with, and they're often off task, and perhaps not doing things that you would expect them to do as a coach. But if we jump in to fix it too quickly, there's about, it's about nudging and nurturing and, and reflective feedback rather than looking for a perfect session. And, and I've certainly seen that for, in my experiences from players. You know, when we've created what we call personal preparation time, which was an hour, we were looking for people to arrive, do their, uh, their release, their massage, to get themselves prepared and be on the field ready to go. And we actually saw a lot of chatting and tea and coffee. And then gradually there were some conversations and nudges and, and over a space of probably three months, we saw a shift to actually they were on the field and being very... Uh, focused on what they were doing and I think that's part of the learning journey for for any athlete regardless of whether they're in performance or, or in the talent pathway. Yeah, for sure and, and, and my reflection on that time is looking back, it was probably between three and six months before we got or the players got to a point where the sessions, the content, the process, the review that they're putting in place and the outcome was being achieved consistently. It took that period of time. The huge temptation because obviously as coaches we want to help, we want to solve problems, don't we? The huge temptation would be to jump in and say, what about this, what about that? Can you do that, do that, do it this way? Actually, that's not the way. It's helping the players reflect on what's happening, posing the right questions. And remember that as role, I think in that instance, is one of nurturing. 
And I think that's where, if you like, parenting, coaching and leadership are absolutely entwined. They're interlinked because the players are growing and developing. We're growing and developing. Everyone's growing and developing. Create the environment for that to happen because I think that's when the magic happens. That's when the gold just happens. Just two things there for me as a sort of a summary there. It goes back to what you talked about before and we discussed is that that learning isn't linear and as a coach expecting that and with that practices might not look perfect the learning might be massive but the practice might look messy and, and uneven and from somebody looking in it might look like lots of failures but failure is important that's about people moving forward and then the, probably the biggest thing as a coach is managing yourself actually I want to step in I want to give feedback I want, actually I need to manage what was the intent of the session and I need to step back in order to create that space for learning and not fi- fix the problem um, request as we come to the end of the podcast is probably you. so Paul just as a final fa- a final piece if you can indulge me a little bit and share a story I think it, it encapsulates some of the things you've talked about in coaching practice and environment um, you shared a story with me um, previously about the fast bowler when you were playing in Perth and, and the circumstances so if you just share that I think it probably from a listener's perspective just brings nicely some of the things together and it's a great story to finish with yeah we were in um, we found ourselves England versus Australia in, in quite a, a tough Ashes battle. And anyone that's been involved, anyone that's been to Australia will probably say it's one of the greatest places to go on holiday. But actually, it's one of the toughest places to ever go and win its sport, isn't it? And I remember being uh, tangled in this test match at Perth. Um, and the context to this was Australia was a, a good side, really good side. And they were slightly better than us in probably most departments. But we'd been working a lot on on our values, our behaviour, the environment, the culture, and we spent a long time on that. And it was put under severe pressure in uh, in Australia. The temperature at that time was 46 degrees wow. in the shade. Okay, so in the middle, you're talking 50 degrees. And things weren't quite going our way. We got a few injuries, the Australians were ahead of the game, and you know, it was really tough. And um, we got to the point where we're in the field for six hours, I think it was day two, and we were rotating players. It was that hot, rotating players as much as we could. And one of our fast bowlers on, on that day, or, or real, um, remain nameless, came, came off in, as I was, almost exhaustion, not quite exhaustion, but she was absolutely shattered. And I remember her going and sitting in the, in the shower area, uh, fully clothed, with ice on her head there was four buckets she got and she's a size uh, size 10 boot as you can imagine yeah. so she's got one right foot left foot bucket of ice right hand left hand two buckets of ice and as a physiotherapist and a strength and conditioning coach pumping in as many um, appropriate Float. energy drinks as possible to bring the player around and she was absolutely exhausted you could see it gradually coming round thankfully knowing that perhaps later on the day she may have to go back on I, I should add at this point that you know from a well-being perspective the player would never go on if she wasn't fit enough or able but she was beginning to think about might need to go on and she was absolutely shattered at this point and we remember and and I, you know this was quite lucky really it wasn't a, strate- a strategic repl- uh, strategically placed um, value as such but as she looked up in the shower area on the on the wall facing her there's one of our values which the players as a team had illustrated all our values and took responsibility for fantastic and the one that she looked at is just as she looked up said unity 
and <laughs> talked about togetherness we're here and she just looked up and she went I'm going to have to go back on at some point Anna, today she went that's what we're about and I'll do it because we are a unit and we are together and we are strong we win together we lose together and I will go back out she went out and took one of the, the, the last few wickets to win is actually that game three or four days down the line so of course the test match yeah. lasts for four days but on, on end of day three day four she took some really important wickets for the team based on her attitude to one of the values and behaviours that we've got in place Thanks so much for sharing that Paul really appreciate you um, sharing with our listeners your uh, experiences and insights in um, building coaching practice and what the bigger uh, structure and environment is so thank you very much for that Thank you Chris Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.